here's your challenge. If you have not been reading your lesson, if you've been reading your lesson, you already know the answers to this and you don't get to guess. But if you have not been reading your lesson, here we go. We have a number here. And my question for you is, ah, what is that number? Anybody? The number of minutes in a year, you are correct. Because we know that there are 1,440 minutes in a day, right? That works out to 60 times 24, 24 hours, 60 minutes in an hour. There are 365 days in a year, unless it's leap year. And so in that event, you've got 365 days in a year. Boom. That makes a total of 525,600 minutes in a year, unless it's leap year. Okay? Now, I did some math this week. Uh-oh. I did some math this week, and I want to share my math with you. My life expectancy... As a 52-year-old male in America is 26 years and some change. So 26 years, I do this math and I figure it out. I've got something on the order of 13,674,240 minutes left if I live. Boom. Now, by the way. If you're, you know, I said my life expectancy at 52 is 26 years. You can do the math, 78. If you're 79, you don't have to give a year back. <laughs> All right? I don't want you thinking, holy smoke, I'm overdrawn in the year bank. No, you're not. You would actually find the older you get, the longer your life expectancy. So, I mean, if, if, if I make it to 60, I don't just have a life expectancy of 18 years. It bumps up higher because they think, hey, man, he made it that far. He's doing pretty good. So they, they, it's, it's a real science that they've got there. But 26 years, I get 13,674,240 minutes almost. Here's the problem. I did that math yesterday. So at this point, I only have 13,672,000. 800 minutes left. They're leaking. I'm losing them. And I know what you're thinking. He's a weirdo. <laughs> now, if you've been in this class before, you already knew that. If you're a first-time guest, you know, man, you, this may be your first time to realize I'm a weirdo. I will confess. I'm a weirdo. I think about these things and I do the math. And I... And, and it... And it, it plays in my brain. And in some ways, that's a blessing. And in some ways, that's a curse. If you've... I got an email from... Uh, was it Marcy? Or was it... who? Was, it's probably been from about 10 or 15 of you saying, you just almost ran over me. Because I'm a horrible driver. <laughs> okay? Let me tell you why I'm a horrible driver. Because I think about this, and I sit there and think... Okay, I have 13,672,800 minutes left, and I'm spending 10 of them in traffic? What a waste of those 10 minutes. If I zip around enough people, I'm going to save like 7 minutes. 
do you know what I can eat in seven minutes? I can do so much with that seven minutes. The problem is my zipping around traffic can really cut short those number of minutes you have because they're no guarantee they're an average. It's the same thing with sleep. I get that many minutes left. Do you know how many of those get gobbled up by sleep if you sleep eight hours a night? One third of them. Boom. Gone. Lop it off. I'm talking four million plus. Boom. Gone. So I decide I'm not going to sleep. <laughs> now, here's the problem with that. If you don't sleep, it turns out your minutes get cut way more than if you do sleep. Because as Becky sends me all these articles, if you don't sleep enough, you will die early. Okay, well, fine. So now to save my minutes, I got to spend my minutes sleeping. It's a blessing and a curse. Let me tell you what. Peter. Peter was acutely aware. All the apostles were acutely aware as we roll into the book of Acts. That their minutes were numbered. When Peter's giving that Pentecost speech, he says, this, the, the pouring out of the Spirit, is what was uttered through the prophet Joel when Joel said, and in the last days it shall be. Because biblically, the last days began with the ascension of Jesus. We live in the last days now. But we've been living in the last days, biblically speaking, since the ascension of Jesus. And so Peter, at the time, Peter doesn't realize the last days are going to go on and on and on. Peter is delivering a sermon acutely aware of the minutes. Jesus has just ascended, said, I will come back in the same manner in which I've left. And Peter's thinking, I got to be ready. What's more, I got a limited amount of time to do exactly what he told me to do. And that sense of urgency and recognition drives some of the narrative in Acts. And where it does not drive the narrative in Acts it kind of stands out as a glaring thing. So I thought while we go through the Acts narrative, we might do it in the framework of examining the choices these people are making. Both those who recognize that they're in their last days and those that are oblivious. So let's look at it together. And to do that, I need to make one change on this slide to get my computer caught up with that. There we go. Now, we look at the book of Acts and we ask this question, how did these people choose to spend their minutes? And that's the overwhelming uh, uh, drive as we look through the narrative. Now, what I'm going to do is basically tell you the story of the first nine chapters of Acts. And as I tell you the story, some of them familiar... Some of them not as familiar. But I want you to listen, whether you know the story or not, listen with your mind focused on how people choose to live. Um, I spoke at, um, I spoke at the commencement, the, I, I gave the commencement address for, um, um, 
the university, uh, Texas Tech University in Lubbock <laughs> in the spring. And um, one of the things I told the graduating class and the people in attendance that I would say, uh, I, I believe with all of my heart, it's, it's an imperative to me as a Christian to say this. Do not default into life. Live deliberately. Do not default. Don't just get up and do what's on the calendar to be done. Don't simply go here or go there out of habit or perceived need. Make deliberate choices with each moment of your life. Because you have no rewind button. And you must find purpose and reason for living. And as Christians, we understand that you have purpose and reason for living. No one is here by default. Scripture teaches plainly that nobody is born simply because their parents had a physical union. And the timing was just right. Children are a gift of the Lord. And so we, we are not an accident. We should not live in accident mode. We don't live by default. We live deliberately. So now, with an eye toward deliberate living, look at the Acts story with me for the next 35 minutes. We start with Acts chapter 1. This begins with Jesus giving his last instructions to the apostles. Jesus tells his apostles, and he's in Jerusalem. He says, now don't leave. You guys stay together until that promised Holy Spirit is poured out on you. The response of the apostles is to do exactly that. They were obedient to the Lord, and they waited. They waited for an hour. They probably decided, okay, I think it's okay for us to go home as long as we all stay in Jerusalem. He said stay in Jerusalem, but, you know, he's not coming back. It hadn't happened this evening. Okay, well, maybe tomorrow. Hey, let's get together tomorrow. Well, I was supposed to go fishing. Okay, well, let's see. Can you get someone to fish? For? Okay, let's get. So they get together the next day. Nothing happens. They get together the next day. Nothing happens. But they are faithful and they are diligent and they wait until the Lord's promise comes. In the meanwhile, though, they, they get a little fidgety. And they start thinking, you know, 12, there were 12 apostles, 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus put the good stock in that number of 12. We've only got 11 because Judas hung himself. He's dead. Maybe we should fill that 12th seat. So they pick out a couple of guys and they decide they're going to fill that empty apostolic seat. And they've got Matthias and they've got the no-name guy. He's got a name, but I don't remember it. Do you? Come on, who actually remembers this guy's name? Some people do, but not many. He didn't get it. Justice. So Justice and Matthias. And when they get it down to those two, they don't have the Holy Spirit to lead them. They don't know. They pray about it and then they flip a coin. Heads you win, tails you lose. And the coin flip puts Matthias in the seat. Now some scholars wonder if maybe this wasn't a pre-Holy Spirit move and they didn't recognize that that seat was reserved for a 12th apostle named Paul. 
The text doesn't really tell us. Luke kind of doesn't really tell us, but he kind of gives some things that might indicate that. I, I think it's conjecture. Who knows? But that's what happens. Now, they still stay together. They still follow the instructions of Jesus when the day of Pentecost arrives. And when the day of Pentecost arrives, they're all together when the Holy Spirit's poured out and this massive, miraculous event starts taking place. And Peter is proclaiming with an understanding he never had before. And with a boldness he never had before. The uneducated fisherman starts speaking proudly about the work of God. And proclaiming the death of Jesus. The people are amazed. They're amazed at what's being said and how it's being said. Because they're understanding it in their native tongue. Though these men are clearly not linguists. So, what happens? Well, the people are preached to by Peter. And Peter explains to them that they killed the Son of God. And they're distraught. They said, well, what do we do now? We killed Jesus. We killed the Son of God. What do we do? And Peter responds and he says, you repent, you turn around, be baptized for the forgiveness of sins to receive the Holy Spirit. You need a change of life. You need to be born again. People say, that's fantastic. There's a, there's a way out of the trap. And so they do. 3,000 people are added to the church that day. 3,000 people. What a massive start that came about because Peter and the apostles chose to do what Jesus said. Those listening chose to do what Peter said. And the choice is made. And the church begins to grow. And that early apostolic church, as of the day of Pentecost, Acts 2.42, continued in a daily breaking of bread, meeting in each other's homes. They continued in prayer. They continued with the apostles teaching them. They continued in their commonness, their koinonia, their communion. And the church was growing. And so we have those choices and we have this early life of the church where they're not only choosing to follow Jesus at once, but they're diligently living each moment as if the Lord might come back the next day. And so these choices include gathering together, holding things together in common, uh, eating together. And they begin to process and do this. Now, the next uh, entry, the next vignette or story that Luke tells us has Peter and John, two of the apostles, going to the temple to pray. Sometimes we think that the early church, once they became Christians, they had nothing to do with Judaism and the temple. That's false. They are going to the temple to pray. 
On the way, they see a lame man. This man's over 40 years old. He's been lame for a long time, all his life. And he's begging for alms. And if you read the passage carefully, you'll see that Peter not only, you know, not only says to the man, silver and gold I don't have, but what I do have, I'm going to give to you in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. But it's an interesting story because Peter's doing this to a man who's not even looking at him. Peter has to take the man's face. Peter says, look at me. Because this is a man who for 40 years or however long, he's been lame for 40 years, but this is how he makes a living. He's one of those people who just sits at the corner of a busy corner. Beggars don't go to out-of-the-way places where there's no big traffic flow. They go to the busy corner. So he's sitting in a busy place, dejected, with a cup out, looking down at the ground, saying, uh, uh, alms for the, the lame, alms for the lame, alms for the lame. And Peter chooses to stop. And Peter chooses to engage. He doesn't drop a copper coin in as he walks by. He doesn't just say, oh, God bless that fella. He stops and he engages him and he says, look at me. Look at me. I don't have silver and gold to give you, but I've got something better. In the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. And the man stood up. Without his crutches. And he didn't just stand up. He's high-fiving them. That's a modern translation. The older translation says, running and leaping. I mean, he's doing the little, you know, that, that kind of stuff. He's just ecstatic. And he goes with Peter and John into the temple. And Peter and John, they go into the temple and they get in, in the temple courts. Now you've got the, the actual Holy of Holies and the Holy and where the priests serve. But all around that are courts and there's a covered porch that's built around the temple. And they're standing in that covered porch. And everybody knows the beggar guy. A bunch of them have probably been tossing him copper po- coins periodically. And he's standing there. He's high-fiving. He's rejoicing. And everybody's coming up. What is going on here? We know you weren't faking. What is this? And Peter takes that moment. And Peter's laying the gospel out. And he's explaining to him. Peter's very blunt. He says, listen, hey, this isn't because I'm some uh, pure and righteous guy that this happened. This happened because of Jesus, the righteous miracle worker, the righteous one, the Messiah, the son of God that you killed. That's who's healed this man. Because God resurrected him and we're witnesses to that. And his power is pulsing in this world. Well, that's not that's not real good for those people. And so we're told that those people say, well, what should we do? And Peter says, repent therefore and turn again that your sins may be blotted out. 
that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. Well, while they're giving this message, it's creating quite a hubbub. And a lot of people, it's drawing people like a magnet. And people are coming. What's going on over there? What's going on? And everybody's coming. And pretty soon, the authorities figure out something's going on. And the priests and the chief priests, hey, what's what's going on over there in the porch? What's all those people? What's that teaching going on? It's none of us. I'm not teaching. You teaching? I'm not teaching. You teaching? I'm not teaching. Who is it? And they go over and they figure out what's going on. Before I get to that, let me say this. They arrest Peter and John and they bring them in front of the council. Here's the way Luke writes it. He says, as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So they arrested them and they put them in custody until the next day. Now you're, what, eight plus weeks out from Jesus' resurrection? From Jesus' arrest? The last arrest, the apostles remember for someone who was speaking out and not pleasing the chief priests and the authorities was Jesus himself. And he got held overnight before they killed him. This is what's in their mind. They're not thinking about what we know 2,000 plus years later. They're just living in the moment. Counting off their minutes. Not knowing how many they have. And the minutes don't look real long when they get arrested and held overnight. Peter, eight weeks before, is too afraid to even admit to knowing Jesus for fear of being arrested. It's not that he's Johnny Rambo courageous in himself. So they get arrested. They get held over. And the next day, they get called before the council. The rulers, the elders, the scribes, with the high priest, the number one guy, religiously, in Judaism, with Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all the others who are in the high priestly family. And in the midst of them, the way Luke writes it, it's that that Peter and John are surrounded by these people. It's a very intimidating picture. And then surrounded, Peter gets asked this question, Peter and John. By what power or by what name did you do this? Now, Peter's got some choices. One choice. Uh, well, you know, uh, 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 another choice. Yo no hablo Hebrew. Another choice, um, 
You want a piece of me? I mean, he's got lots of choices. You know what he does? He's filled with the Holy Spirit. And we know from our class lessons what the Holy Spirit does. He empowers you to proclaim Jesus. And he does. He lays it down there. He just says, hey, if you're cross-examining me because I've healed a lame, crippled guy, then I want you to know something. It wasn't me. It was Jesus of Nazareth who did it through me. Remember him? Eight weeks ago, he's the one you killed that God raised from the dead. And then Peter quotes Psalm 118. He says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. There's salvation in no one else's name. This is the answer for all of Israel and the world. Jesus Christ, whom you rejected. And this is the verse next. Luke says, now, when they, remember who they is. This is the chief priest, high priest, his family of high priests. This is the other priest in the council, the Sanhedrin. These are the rulers. This is the temple authority. This is the power structure of the entire religion. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. But seeing the man who was healed with them, they were at a loss for words. What are they going to say? I mean, the guy's there and he's healed. Which also tells you that guy stuck around and got arrested with Peter and John. So they have a little conference with themselves. They say, uh, you, you know, it's the talk amongst yourselves. And they, they get amongst themselves and they start conferring. And they can't figure out what to do. And so they say, well, you know, this is pretty clear. But we got to do something to stop this. So let's just put the authority of the law out there. And they say to him, hey, no more. You're not allowed to do this anymore. We're going to let you go this time. But don't do it anymore. No more. You understand me? No more. And they let him go. Peter, bless his heart, before he leaves, says one thing. He says, um, sorry, I've got to skip forward. Peter chooses to teach in the temple courts. Peter's before the high priest and council. I got a little behind. See, here it is. He says, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you got to judge. You make that choice. You decide. Do you want to listen to man or do you want to listen to God? But we cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. We are going to do what God tells us to do. No more, no less. That's how we're living our minutes. Those are the choices that we're making. And with that, you know what Peter does? He goes right back into the temple courts to teach. And then we shift scenes again. Now to Ananias and Sapphira. 
But it's really a choice not only of Ananias and Sapphira. There's a choice being made here by a fellow named Joseph as well. See, the church was holding all things in common. They, 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 they're living minute by minute. They still are thinking Jesus might return any moment now. So they, they, they've got no reason to hold on to anything for next year, for next season. They're living in the moment. So there's a fellow named Joseph who has some property and he sells it. And he gives the money. That was his choice. There's a couple named Ananias and Sapphira who have a piece of property. And they sell it. And they claim they give the money, but they lie about it. That was their choice. They get in trouble for lying. Not for not giving all of the money. And they fall down dead. Meanwhile, Joseph who sold his property and gave his money, got a really cool nickname. Barnabas means son of encouragement. Great choices, great results. Now, I told you, Peter goes back into the temple courts and starts preaching again. Goes to the very place where they said, you're not allowed to do this anymore. He's been arrested. He goes right back out there. He just keeps preaching. And when he does, all the crowds are coming to him. And we read that the chief priests, the high priest, and those who were with him were, quote, filled with jealousy. See, this is no longer a simple thing for them of theology. It's crossed over. It's gotten personal. Now they're jealous about it. They don't like the crowd. They don't like the attention. They don't like the power. They don't like these guys. And so they, they, uh, 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 send them, send the guards to arrest them. The high priest rose up, they arrested the apostles, they put them in the public prison. In the night, an angel comes and releases Peter and the others. And Peter and the others go home the very next morning. Do you know what they do? They show up at the temple and start teaching again. The high priest is still asleep. He doesn't even know that he thinks they're in prison. He sends the guards to get them. All right, go to the prison and get them. Guard shows up. Okay, we're here for Peter, prisoner number, you know, 777. And uh, they say, well, he's not here. Well, where is he? I don't know. His cell's locked, but he's gone. Oh, great. Now we got to go back and tell the high priest he's gone. Nobody knows where he went. Well, he's right over there preaching where he was when we arrested him. Little Peter's no longer the scaredy cat he was outside Jesus' arrest. So when the high priest comes and and Peter's there and he's teaching, the high priest and the council, they send the officers to get him. The officers bring them forward. And the high priest says, hey, I ordered you. I gave you very clear, strict instructions not to teach in this man's name. But you're doing it again. And you're doing it in such a way where you're putting his blood on us. You're blaming us for killing him. And Peter responded and said, well, 
That's because you did. Here's the way he says it. We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. And God's exalted him and he's resurrected him and he's made him Lord and King and Savior. And he's there for repentance for Israel. He's there for forgiveness of sins. And we're witnesses to these things. Now, you got to understand. The high priest thinks he's the hot shot who brings forgiveness of sins to the people. He's the one on the annual day of atonement that goes in and sprinkles the blood of the sacrificial lamb to atone for the sins of the people. And he's being told, your job's gone, buddy. Jesus has done it. And we're proclaiming it. And the people are believing it. Now, it's, uh, the, the, the text says, ah, see, I'm getting distracted there. Okay, I've got to fix this. The text says, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. You can see that. Um, Gamaliel stops it. Gamaliel's one of the key priests. In fact, you can still read sayings of Gamaliel today because the early rabbis wrote them down. He was that esteemed and honored a teacher. Gamaliel, of course, is also the uh, uh, mentor of Paul, Paul's rabbi. So Gamaliel pulls aside the council, says private confab, and in the private confab, he basically says, hey, remember that one guy who claimed to be something special from God? They No, exactly my point. If he's special from God, nothing we can do is going to stop him. And if he's not, it'll go away. It'll pass. Just be patient. Now, you might be saying, how on earth do we know they had that private conversation and what was said? Where did that private conversation come from? Is Luke making that up? What we find out in the next chapter is that among those who are coming to faith include a number of priests. Peter's sermons, even in the Inquisition, is not they're not falling on deaf ears. And even priests are coming to faith. So the word of God continues to multiply. Now, meanwhile, there's a problem. There are different types of Jewish widows that are getting handouts and help. There are the Jewish widows who are Aramaic in their language and Semitic and, and, and Jewish. But there are also Jewish women who are from Greek-speaking areas who've stuck around, converted with this stuff, but they don't really speak the local language. They speak Greek. They're called the Hellenist. And the Greek-speaking women don't think that, widows don't think that they're getting a fair handout. So the apostles choose to delegate. They say, Pick seven people that everybody agrees are really fair, good, wise, full of the Spirit, great people. Those seven are selected. Luke lists the seven. Among the seven, two, seven, two stand out. Stephen and um, Philip. So Stephen, meanwhile, I love the story of Stephen. Stephen is one who goes out and he starts preaching. And he's arguing with the Jews who don't believe Jesus is the Messiah. And he's doing it effectively. Stephen gets arrested. Stephen gets brought before the council and high priest. They say to him, hey, what are you doing? 
more than that, they bring in some false witnesses. Here's what the false witnesses say. The false witnesses say, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place, the temple, and against the law. So they pull Stephen up and say, what do you ha- how do you answer that accusation? And Stephen answers it like this. Let's get the accusation right, because you've got to understand Stephen's answer. It's just mind-boggling. Accusation. You, you are speaking against the temple and the law. Response. Stephen says, well, God appeared to our father Abraham in Mesopotamia. Okay, we're sitting here saying, well, yeah, duh. No, 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 no. Got to get the mindset on. These people think God appears in the temple. They think God lives in the temple. They forgot their Old Testament. And starting with Abraham, Stephen shows all these different times God's meeting and communicating with people long before the temple's ever built. God's not living in a temple built by hands. Don't be so deceived. For me to say God's acting and working apart from the temple is consistent with what he's always done. He did it with Abraham. He did it with Jacob. He did it with with uh, uh, Moses. He did it and he marches through the judges. And he marches through the Old Testament. He even did it with King David. David was before the temple. And as for the law, he ends up saying, As for the law, you want to say I'm speaking against the law? I'm not speaking against the law. Moses, who gave us the law in the law, says there's going to be someone who comes greater than me. I'm not speaking out against Moses. I'm not speaking out against the law. And I'm not speaking out against God. I'm speaking out against your corruption and what you're missing in Jesus Christ. That's what I'm speaking out to. And they stoned him. Do you know why they stoned him? Do you know what his ultimate point was? You hypocrites. You claim I'm speaking out against the law. You remember those Ten Commandments? First of all, you've got false witnesses against me. Whoops, there's one. Second of all, thou shalt not murder. You killed the holy and righteous one. You murdered Jesus. How dare you pull me in here and accuse me of speaking out against the law when I'm only in here proclaiming that you... Killed the holy and righteous one of God. You committed murder. Well, that doesn't go over well. So as a result, they said, uh, okay, time to stone him. And they take him out. And he's full of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> yeah, here's his final, here's Stephen's final line. Which of the prophets did not your fathers persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. That's the righteous one that you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. When they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. He's full of the Holy Spirit and uh, uh, sees God and chooses In his last words, not only to commit his spirit to God, but to pray to God to forgive Paul, 
and the others around him who are doing this. And as he prays for God to forgive Paul, we have a short little vignette where the gloves come off because the church is being scattered. The gloves come off in the sense that all of a sudden it's, it's just vitriolic hatred and driven ambition by Paul and others to destroy the church. And the persecution is so great that the church just spreads everywhere. It just says, okay, we're not all meeting right here anymore. Now we need to kind of disperse and the church spreads out. So get the irony of this. Paul and others, the high priests, are trying to destroy the faith. And they're trying so hard to destroy it that they cause the faith to disperse and go everywhere like a contagion. They at least had it quarantined. They had the infection in one area. But they made the persecution so hard the infection went everywhere. And the church starts spreading everywhere. And we go to Samaria and we see the church in Samaria where Simon the magician is converted. I love this story. Yeah, he's, that's what he looked like. I've seen his picture. I love this story. Philip's in Samaria. He's preaching Simon the magician, also known as Simon the Great. Doesn't that sound like a magician's name even today? Simon the Great. Presto change All right, so Simon the Great. The Great. Becomes a believer and is amazed at the power of the Holy Spirit. So he goes up to the apostles and he says, look, this could be an economic boon to me. I'd use it in all the right ways. If I give you some bucks, little do-re-mi, would you uh, give me that Holy Spirit power? That would not be magic. That would be real. And the reaction of the apostles is um, pretty blunt. They say, wow, that's the most disgusting thing anyone has suggested in a long time. You know, this is the kind of stuff that really brings great judgment upon somebody by God. God's not into, this is not an economic tool. What it is, is if, if you're familiar with the words justification, in sanctification. Simon, the magician, bless his heart, was saved. But he was a very immature Christian who didn't have much understanding. And so he's wanting to do things the old way. And the apostles sort of let him know that's not the way. And at a time where Simon the Magician has a choice, he could either say, well, oh, forget this stuff. I'm, I'm, I've got nothing to do with it. Or he could grow. And it's the choice to grow that he makes. And he says to the apostles, okay, I didn't know. Sorry. Would you pray for me? I, I don't want to, I want to, I want to grow. I want to be right. It's a marvelous choice. Meanwhile, Paul, is, oh, Philip leaves Samaria does the Ethiopian eunuch. We talked about that in a good bit last week. Paul heads to Damascus to start uh, killing everybody in the dispersed area or imprisoning them, trying to do something with the contagion that's spreading around the countryside. On the road to Damascus, Paul is confronted by Jesus. 
And when Paul's confronted by Jesus, he becomes a believer, as we talked about. He is healed from the blindness, and he starts teaching. And Paul has this ability to not only speak Aramaic Hebrew, but he's got an ability to speak Greek fluently. And so Paul's now engaging the Hellenistic Jews. He's engaging those Greek-speaking Jews. And, and, and Paul, after a time in Damascus where Paul's going to get in trouble, returns to Jerusalem. Well, the apostles and everybody, they don't want to have anything to do with him. They're scared to death. They think he's faking. This is the guy that was behind Stephen's stoning, or at least a part of it. This is a guy who's been persecuting everybody. Now he's just come back here because he wants to get in the house churches and figure out who's there and who's not. It's a plant. And it's Barnabas, Joseph, the son of encouragement, who takes Paul in and explains, no, no, no. He's met the Lord. It's changed who he is. And he's already been suffering for the sake of the gospel. He's been arguing for a year plus in Damascus. He's been taking on the Greek-speaking Jews. He's, he's one of us. And Barnabas, the son of encouragement, brings him into the church. So, 13,672,800 minutes when we started. Now I'm down to 13,672,765 minutes. What are we going to do with them? Let me tell you three things I'm going to do. These are my points for home. When um, the uh, people were convicted of their sin, as Peter preached his sermon, they said to Peter and the apostles, what shall we do? And that's where Peter said, repent, be baptized, turn away, change who you are. They chose to ask a question of God. What shall I do? I'm going to ask that question of God. My question in deliberate living is not, with my minutes that I have left, is not what do I want to do. It's what should I do? What shall we do? I'm going to ask that question. Then, Peter's told by an angel when he's released from the prison, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. Peter does so. Oh, it causes some heartache and trouble. But priests are converted. And a chain reaction is set up that leads to the conversion of Paul, that leads to the spread of, of the faith throughout the Roman Empire, that leads to an inclusion of the Gentiles, that leads to an establishment of, of a... Of a uh, not establishment, but that contributes to this building snowball that has us here today. I think I'm going to choose with my minutes left to follow the Lord's directive. I'm going to ask the questions. I'm going to seek his directive. Then I'm going to follow it. And last point for home. Barnabas took him, Paul, and brought him, Paul, to the apostles and declared to them how Paul had done all these different things, that Paul's conversion was genuine. I love that choice of Barnabas. Barnabas could have let someone else do it. But Barnabas seems to be someone who's really good at making choices. So I want to ask the question. I want to follow the Lord's directive. And I trust that if I am making right choices, I might get a cool nickname out of the deal. It's like Barnabas. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for 
the story of our faith, the history of our community, your one holy church, bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus. And we pray that we will seek from you what we should be doing. And as you reveal it to us, or as you teach us to figure it out, that we will follow it, trusting you with the consequences. We want to be your servants every minute of every day that you give us. Through Jesus we pray, amen. Amen.